Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Martyrs and Missionaries is a production of Revive Studios. You're listening to Martyrs and Missionaries. I'm Elise, and every episode I'll bring you a new martyr and or missionary, the called and the brave. In this episode, we're talking about C.T. Studd, founder of the Heart of Africa mission and one of the epic Cambridge Seven. Martyrs and Missionaries is back after a brief hiatus, and I am very excited to bring you for our first episode back, The Life of C.T. Studd. Many of you have actually requested that I cover him uh, for actually probably close to a year now, and I am just now getting around to it. So for all of you who have been waiting, this is the moment. Let's hop in here to the life of C.T. Studd. Charles Thomas Studd was born in 1860 in England to a wealthy Victorian family who made their fortune in indigo production in India. C.T.'s father Edward heard the gospel much later in life when D.L. Moody and Ira Sankey toured England in 1877. And once he received the gospel, once he accepted Christ, he became very, very concerned with the spiritual well-being of his sons. Now, many of you know that C.T. Studd was a famous cricketer, but did you know that multiple sons of Edward Studd were famous cricketers? In fact, two of them went on to become the mayors of London, and two of them were also missionaries. The three oldest brothers, C.T., J.E.K., and J.B., as they were called, were known to the cricketing world as the Studd brothers. In the couple years before he died, C.T.'s dad would often come into the boys' rooms and ask them to accept Christ. He also invited many pastors over to his house and held many revivals to share the gospel with his six children. On one particular day, Edward had called over a pastor, and this pastor asked C.T. if he believed God's promises to give believers eternal life. C.T. said yes, just in an effort to get this man to leave him alone. But the preacher pressed the issue a little bit more and asked if C.T. believed that he would obtain eternal life when he died. And C.T. was stunned because it's often the most simple things. Like these are things we've maybe heard before, things we should know. But sometimes when you hear something over and over and over again, all it takes is one time to make you think it a little bit differently. And this is what happens to C.T., This is a simple truth. He's heard it before, but something about this time is different, and so he's left stunned. He had no answer. He was living for himself and believed that nothing would happen after he died. And after the preacher explained about Jesus and what he did on the cross, C.T. and his two other brothers committed their lives to Christ. And C.T. later recalls the moment, and he says this, I got down on my knees, and I did say thank you to God, and right then and there joy and peace came into my soul. I knew then what it was to be born again, and the Bible, which had been so dry to me before, became everything. 
Now, if you're thinking this is where his story really takes off, from this moment, he begins to do all these amazing things. No. In fact, he spends the next six years just spiritually dry as a bone. He was studying at Eden College and then at Trinity and became very, very famous in the cricketing circles. And he was incredibly dedicated. He would spend hours practicing in the mirror to get his swing just right. And I'll be honest, I'm not a sports person, so I know absolutely nothing about cricket. Uh, but I do know that people argue that CT may have been one of the best cricket players to have ever played. So in these six years, he was living entirely for cricket and entirely for himself. And as he relates, instead of going and telling others of the love of Christ, I was selfish and kept that knowledge to myself. And the result was that gradually my love began to grow cold and the love of the world began to come in. And I spent six years in that unhappy, backslidden state. It took his brother's serious illness and hearing D.L. Moody once again speak that shook him up enough to straighten out his priorities. And soon after he kind of gets his life back together, he was reading a pamphlet written by an atheist who said that if he truly believed the things that Christians claim to believe, that he would do anything in his power to reach as many people as possible. C.T. then said, I found that I had something infinitely better than cricket. My heart was no longer in the game. I wanted to win souls for the Lord, and I knew that cricket would not last, and honor would not last, and nothing in this world would last, but it was worthwhile living for the world to come. So C.T. joined a group of Christian athletes who were also studying at Cambridge, and they held regular Bible studies and shared the gospel with other athletes and students. And he wrote, I cannot tell you what joy it gave me to bring the first soul to the Lord Jesus Christ. I have tasted almost all the pleasures that this world can give. But those pleasures were as nothing compared to the joy that the saving of one soul gave me. In 1885, seven of this little Bible study group were attending a meeting hosted by Hudson Taylor, who was speaking about the need of missionaries to China. He and the other six felt deeply convicted to go to China, and they were accepted into the China Inland Mission, and the seven toured England and Scotland, preaching and appealing to their listeners to follow their example and to follow Christ. And they became celebrities, probably because they were famous cricketers, they were famous rowers, so people already knew their names. And so they were hearing about these people who they had heard, you know, in the sports column or read, I guess, in the sports column. And they were like, oh, these people seem very different. Like what's happened in their life? And so they got more, uh, there was more attention drawn to them this way. And so there was also more attention drawn to Hudson Taylor's ministry in China. Their story was published as the evangelization of the world and was distributed to every YMCA and every YWCA throughout Britain and the U.S. And what's interesting about this is they hadn't even gone over to China yet. They were just moving towards China, but they hadn't actually gone yet. But their story was so, like, mind-blowing that it was worthy of having a book published about it. And they helped catapult the CIM, or the China Inland Mission, from obscurity to an almost embarrassing prominence. And their work helped to inspire many recruits for the CIM and other mission societies. And in 1885, when the seven first arrived in China, the CIM had 163 missionaries. And this was doubled by 1890 and had reached 800 by the year 1900 which represented one-third of the entire Protestant missionary force. In 
When the Cambridge Seven, as they were called, arrived in China in 1885, they adopted the Chinese customs and dress as was required by the CIM missionaries. And on arriving in China, the Seven toured the European settlements, and here again many were saved. And Hudson Taylor then took them in. And I love Hudson Taylor and his methodology because he lets them see kind of the, the easier side of life. It gets them kind of, you know, they're comfortable. They're like, okay, this isn't so bad. You know, I can do this. And then he goes, let's go into the interior. Let's go where people really, really need the gospel. And in this endeavor, learning Chinese was paramount to them being useful, but C.T. Studd was impatient with his progress and grew weary of the struggle. So whereas he spent hours and hours and hours practicing his swing in the mirror, when it came to learning Chinese, and I think this is because it has a real spiritual impact. Often we find ourselves struggling to do the right thing when we know we should be doing it because it's hard and there's actually spiritual consequence behind it. In cricketing, there's not really any spiritual consequence like he was just playing for love of the game and to get good but when he's learning chinese this can have an actual impact on the souls of the chinese he's reaching so ct has this idea so on the slow journey up the river he and two of the others put down their books and they fasted and prayed for the supernatural gift of the chinese language but the experienced hudson taylor wrote this how many and subtle are the devices of Satan to keep the Chinese ignorant of the gospel? The Chinese language did not come as some miraculous gift, and C.T. Studd and the others resumed their studies. I do appreciate this, though, because I think we've all been there when we're trying to learn something new, and we're like, God, could you just, just pump it in there somehow? Just get it in there. Maybe while I'm sleeping, you can kind of help me out here. But that's oftentimes not how God works. He wants us to be disciplined and to do what we need to do to do the right thing. Um, and this is the case with Stud and these other Cambridge Seven. And so they got back to it, and as much as possible, they dressed and ate and lived like the Chinese. And Hudson Taylor led the seven young men even further into the interior to work with a Chinese pastor. And this pastor was a recovered opium addict. And his work was really, really successful in the region. And that makes sense. This is the kind of the boon of Chinese missions. This is after the Boxer Rebellion and all the opium wars and stuff that had happened in previous years. And for the next like 30 to 40 years, China was really, really ready to receive the gospel up until uh, the Chinese Civil War and the uh, communist takeover. Of C.T.'s time in China, his son-in-law, Norman Grubb, who also has a biography on him that I will link in the description of this episode, uh, he notes, the outstanding lesson with which he learned during this period was to become a man of one book. From this time onward, it became a principle of his life to read the Bible almost to the exclusion of other books, marking it copiously and receiving it with the attitude of a little child, in simple dependence upon the Holy Spirit to illuminate the word to him. And before C.T. even left for China, he knew that when he turned 25, he would come into his inheritance. And as I mentioned earlier, his father was incredibly, exceedingly wealthy. And C.T. didn't know exactly how much that he would inherit, but he had already committed the majority of it to fund mission work, and not his own personal mission work, but the mission work of others. And the amount of money that he inherited was equal to about $25 million. And he gave it to D.L. Moody, to George Mueller, to the YMCA, to the Salvation Army, and many other worthy causes. 
and he sets aside a very small sum, at least to him, out of $25 million. Um, that would be used as a dowry for his wife, kind of a wedding present. And during his early years in ministry, he meets his future wife, Priscilla Livingston. And as near as I can tell, her name is Livingston, but she is of no relation to David Livingston. She came to China from Ireland in a wave of many other missionaries, answering the call of Hudson Taylor. The two soon became engaged, but as is often the case in these missionary stories, they were serving in different cities. And Priscilla becomes sick with pneumonia, and so she sends for C.T., who was also recovering from his own lung issues. And the journey was so long that the locals insisted they get married, because clearly they were devoted to each other, so why would they wait? Why put it off? Just just go ahead and do it. So just before their wedding, C.T. presented his bride with the remaining money from his inheritance. And Priscilla said, Charlie, what did the Lord tell the rich man to do? And he said, sell it all. And she said, well then, we will start clear with the Lord at our wedding. And they gave the rest of the money away to missions. So they were entirely dependent upon the Lord from that moment forward. So they were married by a local pastor there, and they moved even further into the interior of China. And Studd and the other Cambridge Seven had a very fruitful ministry in the interior, and he wrote down one story in particular, and I'll read it because it's really, really cool. He's talking about a meeting he has, and he says a single Chinese man remained behind, right at the back of the room. When we went to him, he said, I am a murderer, an adulterer, and I have broken all the laws of God and man again and again. I am also a confirmed opium smoker. He cannot save me. We laid before him the wonders of Jesus and his gospel and his power. The man meant business, and he was soundly converted. He said, I must go to the town where I have done all this evil and sin, and in that very place tell the good tidings. And so he did, and he was brought before the magistrate and was ordered 2,000 strokes with a bamboo until his back was one mass of red jelly, and he was thought to be dead. And he was taken to the hospital and nursed by Christian hands till at last he was able to sit up and he said, I must go back again to my own city and preach this gospel. And we strongly dissuaded him, but a short time after he started preaching in the same place. Once more he was brought back before the court. They were ashamed to give him the bamboo again, and so sent him to prison. But the prison cell had a small open window and holes in the wall, and crowds collected and he preached out the windows and holes, till finding he did more preaching inside prison than out, they set him free. Such men are worthy of saving. I love the personal stories like this, and it actually reminds me a little bit of one of the stories from John G. Payton, where one of the converted cannibals goes and keeps preaching the gospel uh, to his village until they basically beat him to death, almost to death, and he insists on going back and still uh, preaching and teaching, and eventually they do kill him. But these kind of things, these kind of stories are so incredible and show us just how much Christ is revolutionary in people's lives. It's, it's amazing.
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. But as is often the case in these missionary stories, perpetual ill health plagued the couple. Now, usually it's one spouse or the other that suffers from chronic health issues, but sadly, both of the studs suffered. So 10 years and a few daughters later, they were forced to pack up and head back to England. And this was a difficult adjustment for their girls as they were completely unaware of how to live in British society. As far as I can tell, they didn't even speak English. Um, Maybe they spoke a little bit, but they spent the majority of their life living entirely as Chinese. But luckily, they had their grandmother to help them adjust. And Stud always said that God gave him daughters to help the Chinese to understand the value of little girls. And I really like that. I think that's very sweet. And Stud was not somebody who could sit still. So once his health improved, he went on a tour in America and spoke at the rapidly growing Student Volunteer Mission for Foreign Missions. Student Volunteer Mission for Foreign Missions. And many universities. That's kind of a a mouthful, I suppose. But while he was traveling, he felt the pull to set up a mission in India. In fact, it had been his father's dying wish. His brother told him that people in North India know the name of Stud, but what had they seen? Stud the indigo planter? Stud seeking wealth? But never Stud seeking the salvation of souls. Are they not going to see Stud the ambassador of Christ Jesus? The answer to that question was yes. Yes, they would. And after traveling extensively to preach the gospel in India, Stud settled in southern India with his family. And the city he was in quickly became known as the place to be avoided unless a man means to get converted. And he was actually in the same region as Amy Carmichael at the same time she was doing mission work. But I could find no evidence they ever actually met, but it would actually be really cool if they had. Stud and his family lived there for about six years, from 1900 to 1906, when once again, poor health forced them back to England. A couple years later, in 1908, Stud was in Liverpool, and he saw a sign that said, Cannibals want missionaries, and Stud thought, well, of course they do, for many different reasons. And the sign is outside of this building where someone is giving a talk. So he walks in and he sees this German missionary talking about Central Africa. And this missionary says that lots of people had been there, but no one had brought the gospel. And Stud wanted to go really bad, but his health was horrible. A committee of Christian businessmen agreed to support him if he gained the approval of his doctors. But the doctors refused permission 
telling him that the health risks of Africa were just too high. And Studd told the committee, Gentlemen, God has called me to go, and go I will. I will blaze a trail, though my grave may only become a stepping stone that younger men may follow. And so in 1910, Studd left England by boat for Africa without the backing of a mission society or committee. He leaves entirely on his own. His wife and kids stay back in England. His wife really didn't want him to go because she said, you're not well. But he leaves anyway. And the first night at sea, he felt God's reassurance concerning his mission. He said, the committee I work under is a conveniently small committee, a very wealthy committee, a wonderfully generous committee and is always sitting in session. The committee of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. About this time in his life, his son-in-law, Norman Grubb, writes, Career and fortune had gone early on the altar. Now health and home and family life went also. On the initial expedition, Studd heard that the vast population in the Congo region was yet unreached by the gospel. And two years later, Studd, then aged 52, and his young co-worker Alfred Buxom, aged 20, traveled by bicycle and foot for nine months to reach the heart of Africa. And Studd was not ignorant of his condition, of his age, and of his limitations, and he said, If I am not as efficient as youngsters, I am still more efficient than an absentee. By 1923, there were 40 others helping share the gospel in Central Africa, helping and reaching thousands of people. Studd founded the Heart of Africa mission in 1913, and his wife helped manage the mission from England. The name was changed to Worldwide Evangelization for Christ to reflect the mission's goal to reach the unreached all over the world. They still operate today, and they plant churches in indigenous and unreached people groups who have little to no access for the gospel. They are now called WEC International, I believe. In his 16 years ministering in Africa, C.T. only saw his wife once, lost most of his teeth, and suffered multiple heart attacks. So why did he do it? And when he had every excuse not to, his wife, his doctors, and literally everyone told him not to go. And in response, he said this, how could I spend the best years of my life living for the honors of this world when thousands of souls are perishing every day? A lot of missionaries that we've covered on this podcast have some books they've written. Actually, many of them have tons of books that they have written. Uh, but C.T. doesn't have a lot of those. He only has, I believe, one. And it's called The Chocolate Soldier. And it is available in Kindle for free. It's public domain, I believe. So you can kind of pick it up anywhere. I got my copy uh, on Kindle. And it's a really, really, really good read. And I, I do recommend it. It's about, I want to say 17 pages long. So it's not long or tedious at all. In fact, I love the way that he writes because he has just this very direct way that he writes. And in this book, you can really get the heart of C.T. Studd. One of his biggest concerns was that people are just too comfortable to go out and do the hard work, that they are these chocolate soldiers that melt under any adversity. And I want to read the first page to you here because it is just fantastic. Heroism is the lost cord, the mission note of present-day Christianity. Every true soldier is a hero. A soldier without heroism is a chocolate soldier. Who has not been stirred to scorn and mirth at the very thought of a chocolate soldier? In peace, true soldiers are captive lions, fretting about in their cages, 
War gives them their liberty and sends them like boys bounding out of school to obtain their heart's desires or perish in the attempt. Battle is the soldier's vital breath. Peace turns him into a stooping asthmatic. War makes him a whole man again and gives him the heart, strength, and vigor of a hero. Every true Christian is a soldier of Christ, a hero par excellence, braver than the bravest, scorning the soft seduction of peace and her oft-repeated warnings against hardship, disease, danger, and death, whom he counts among his bosom friends. The otherwise Christian is a chocolate Christian, dissolving in water and melting at the smell of fire. Sweeties they are, bonbons, lollipops, living their lives on a glass dish or in a cardboard box, each clad in his soft clothing, a little frilled white paper to preserve his dear, delicate constitution. And so the book goes on like that, and he has these different portraits of people in the Bible who are the opposite of chocolate soldiers, and he kind of plays back and forth with them um, and then kind of ends the book with this call to action. What will you become? Will you be a hero or will you be a chocolate soldier? On July 16, 1931, C.T. Studd passed away at the age of 70 while still serving in the heart of Africa. His funeral was attended by over 2,000 people. I want to close out this episode on the life of C.T. Studd with one final rousing quote of his to encourage us all to live our lives with drive and purpose for the cause of Christ. He says, Let us not glide through this world and then slip quietly into heaven without having blown the trumpet loud and long for our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Let us see to it that the devil will hold a thanksgiving service in hell when he gets the news of our departure from the field of battle. I am so excited to be back from this hiatus and to get back into telling the lives of these incredible people. And I think that C.T. Studd is a really good person to start with. Uh, His life is just awesome. And I will plug The Chocolate Soldier really hard because I think everyone should read it. It's fantastic. Uh, There's also a book written by his son-in-law, Norman Grubb, called The Cricketer and Pioneer. And I will link actually both of these things into the episode description so that you can read them The Chocolate Soldier is free, but I do believe the Cricketer and Pioneer does cost a little something. I also want to give you a preview of what's to come, because we're actually going to stick in Africa for a little bit longer. We're going to cover the life of Henry M. Stanley, and you may have heard it if you are a Revive Thoughts listener. I did an episode with my husband Troy about hmm, maybe over a year ago, I can't remember about David Livingston. And in it, we mention Henry M. Stanley. He is the guy who famously said, Dr. Livingston, I presume. And that's about all everyone knows about him. But he has an entirely huge autobiography of his life going through the interior of Africa, fighting cannibals. I mean, it's intense. It's amazing. And I believe it will take us two, probably three parts to get through, but you will not regret it. It is incredible. So be on the lookout for that. Get excited. And as always, thank you for listening to Martyrs and Missionaries. I'm Elise.
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.